the shadow before, they began the perfection, the perfections are sharpened, a flower spreads its coloured pebbles, roid in the sun, but the tongue of the bee misses them, they sink back into the loom, crying out, you may call it a cry that creeps over them, a shiver, as they wilt and disappear, William Carlos Williams Patterson, boom, down in a dead man's town, Bruce Springsteen, chapter one, after the flood, 1957, one, the terror which would not end for another 28 years, if it ever did end, began so far away, as I know, or can tell, with a boat made from a sheet of newspaper, floating down a gutter, swollen with rain, the boat bobbed, listed, righted itself again, and dived bravely through treacherous whirlpools and continued on its way down Whitton Street towards the traffic light which marked the intersection of Whitton and Jackson. The three vertical lenses on all sides of the light at traffic light were dark this afternoon. In the fall of 1957, houses were all dark too. There had been steady rain for a week now, and two days ago the winds had come as well. Most sections of Derry had lost their power then, it was not back on yet. A small boy in a yellow slicker and red goloshes ran cheerfully along beside the newspaper boat. The rain was not stopped, but it finally slackening. It tapped on the yellow hood on the boy's slicker, sounding onto his ears like rain on a shed roof. A comfortable, almost cosy sound. The boy in the yellow sticker was George Denborough. He was six, his brother William, known to most of the kids as at Derry Emory School and even to the teachers who would never have used the nickname to his face as Stuckman Bill was at home hacking out the last but nasty case of influenza. In the autumn of 1957, eight months before the real world began and 28 years before the final showdown, Stuckman Bill was just 10 years old. Bill was made the boat besides which George now ran. He made it sitting up in bed, his back propped against a pile of pillows, while their mother played for Elsie on the piano in the parlour, and rain swept raisily against his bedroom window. About three quarters of the way down the block, the one headed towards the intersection, a dead traffic light, which charm street was blocked to the motor traffic by smudge pots, and four orange sauces stenciled each across each other. Losses was Dairy Depo, Depot of Public Works, Department of Public Works. Beyond them, the rain has spilled out of the gutters, clogged with branches and rocks and big sticky piles of autumn leaves. The water had first peered finger holes in the paving and then snatched whole greeny handfuls. All this on the third day of the rains. By noon on the fourth day, big chunks of the street surfaces were boating through the intersections of Jackson and Whitcomb, a miniature whitewash water rafts. By that time, many people in Derry had begun to make nervous jokes about arcs. The public works department had managed to keep Jackson Street open, with Whitcomb was impassable from the sea sources all the way to the centre of the town. But everyone agreed the worst was over. The King Kendusterg stream had crested just below its banks. The barrens are bare inches below the concrete sides of the canal, 
which channeled it tightly as it passed through downtown. Right now, a gang of men, Zach Denbora, George and Bill's father, among them, were removing the sandbags they had thrown up the day before. With much, such hasty, panicky haste, yesterday overflow, expensive flood damage had seemed almost inevitable. Gordon knew it had happened before. I flooded in 1931. had been a disaster which had cost millions of dollars. Almost two. And almost two dozen lives. That was a long time ago. There was still enough people around who remembered it to scare the rest. One of the, one of the flood victims had been found 25 miles east of his black spot. A fish had eaten his unfortunate gentleman's eyes. Three of his fingers, his penis, and most of his left foot clutched in what remained of his hands with a full so, steering wheel. Now, through the river was seeding, and when the young new Bangor Hydro Dam went in upstream, the river would cease to be a threat. Or so said Zach Denborough, who worked at the Bangor Hydroelectric. As for the rest, well, future floods would take care of themselves. The one thing was to get through this one, to get the power back on, and then to forget it. A daring such forgetting of tragedy and disaster was almost an art, as Bill Denborough would come to discover in the course of time. George pools just below the sea horses at the edge of the deep ravine had been cut through the tar surfaces which couldn't treat. The ravine ran up to almost to that diagonal, the end of the far side of the street, roughly forty feet further down the hill from where he now stood on the right. He laughed aloud the sound of solitary, childish glee at a bright runner in that grey afternoon. A vagary of furring water took his hobo boat to small gale rapids, and which now formed by the break in tar. The urgent water had cut a canal now, which ran along the diagonal, and so his boat travelled from one side to Wickham Street, the other, the currents carrying on it so fast that George had to sprint to keep up with it. Water sprayed out from beneath his glasses and muddy sheets. The bubbles made a jolly jigging. As George Denbury ran towards his death, his strange death, and a feeling which filled him, and the moment was clear and simple love for his brother Bill. Love and a touch of regret that Bill couldn't be there here to see and be part of it. Of course, he would try to describe it to Bill when he got home, but he knew he wouldn't be able to make Bill see it. My Bill would have been able to make him see it if the positions had been reversed. Bill was good at reading writing, not but even at his age, George was wise enough to know that it wasn't the only reason why Bill got ways in his book cards, or why his teachers liked his composition so well. Tunning was both only part of it. Bill was good at seeing. A boat ne- nearly whistled along the Daniel Channel, just at the dawn for the classified section of Derry News. But now George imagined it as a PT boat, the war movie, like the ones he sometimes saw down at Derry Theatre, with Bill as Saturday Matinees, a war picture John Moy fighting the Japs, a prowl of the newspaper boat, threw sprays of water to either side of it, rushed along, and it reached the gutter on the left side of Witcham Street, a fresh streamlet rushed over the break in the tar at this point, creating a fairly large whirlpool, it seemed to him that the boat must be swamped and capsized. He leaned in, leaned in the army, and George cheered as it righted itself, turned and went racing down towards his intersection. George went to catch up. Over his head, 
A grim gust of October wind rattled in the trees, now almost completely unburdened by their freight of coloured leaves by the storm, which had been this year a reaper of the most ruthless sort. Sitting up in bed, his cheeks still flushed with the feet, but his fever, like the candor dusklick, finally receding. Bill had finished the boat, but when George reached for it, Bill held it out of reach. Nah, you get me the paraffin. What? What's that? What is it? Why, it's on the search. Self as you go downstairs, Bill said. In a box that says golf. Bring that to me, and a knife, and a bowl, and pack of matches. George had gone to Bailey to get these things. He could hear his mother playing the piano. Not for Elsie now, but something else he didn't like so well. Something that sounded dry and fussy. He, he could hear rain flicking suddenly against the wind, kitchen windows. Comfortable sounds, but the fall of the cellar was not a bit comfortable. He did not like the cellar. He did not like going down the cellar stairs, because he always imagined there was something down there in the dark. That was silly, of course. His father said so. His mother said so. Even more important, Bill said so. But still, even not even like, like opening the door, a flick of light, because he always had the idea. This is incredibly stupid. He didn't dare tell anyone that while he was fitting the light switch, some horrible poor Claude Paul was settled lightly over his wrist and jerked him down in the darkness and smelled of dirt and wet and dim rotten vegetables. Stupid. No such thing. No things of claws. All hairy and full. Of killer spite. Even now, and someone went crazy and killed a lot of people. Something Shirt Hanley told about such things on the evening news. Of course, there were copies, but there was no weird monster living down in the cellar. And so still, this idea lingered. In those intermittent moments, while he was groping on the switch, with his hand, right hand, his left hand curled around the door jam, the death trap, the cellar smell seemed to intensify to fill the world. Spells of dirt and wet and long gone vegetables would merge into one unmistakable infant, inelectable smell. The smell of the monster, the perfidies of all monsters. It was a smell of something which was had he had no name. The smell of it. It crouched and lurking and ready to spring. A creature would could eat something, but which was extremely hungry for boy meat. He would open the door one morning and grope immediately. That morning and immediately. Intermediately, eternally for the switch, holding a jab in his usual death grip, his eyes squinted shut, the tip of his tongue poked with the corner of his mouth, like an agonized rootlet, searching for water in a place, a drought. Funny, sure, you better look it. Look at, look at you, Georgie. Georgie's scared of the dark. What a baby. Santa Pano came from his father, called the living room, and that his father called, his mother called him the parlor. Sounded like music from another world. Far away, the way he talked, oh, laughter, or some kind of beach might sound to exhausted swimmer who struggles with an undertone. Your fingers found the switch. Ah! Then snapped it. And nothing, no power. Oh, quite, the power. George snatched his arm back as if from a basket filled with snakes. He stepped back from the open door to the door. His arm hurrying to his chest. The power was out. Of course. He had forgotten the power was out. Jeezy Crow, what now? Go back and tell Bill. 
He wouldn't get the box of power for him, because the power was out. He was afraid that something might get him. He stood on the cellar stairs. Suddenly it wasn't a commie or mass murderer, but a creature much worse than either. What what would simply sever past it rotten itself out of up between the stair risers and grab its ankle. What would go over big, wouldn't it? Others might laugh at such a fancy, but Bill wouldn't laugh. Bill would be mad. Bill would say, Grow up, Georgie, do you want this boat or not? As he thought they were, at this fault where his cue, Bill called up for the bedroom. Do do you die to die out there? Georgie? No, I'm getting it, Bill. Georgie called back at once. He rubbed his arm, trying to make the guilty goose flesh disappear. He smoothed skin again. I just stopped to drink a water, uh, get a drink of water. Well, hurry up. Again, he walked down the four steps and set up shelf. His heart, a, a warm beating ammo in his throat. A hair on his neck, on his neck, standing attention. His eyes got hot, his hands cold, sure. Any moment, the sudden door would swing shut on his own, closing off the white light falling through the kitchen windows. Then we'd hear it, something worse than all the comedies of murderers in the world, worse than the Japs, worse than the Eternally Hun, worse than something of his hundred warm, hundred horror movies. It's growling deeply. He could hear the growl in the lunatic seconds before it pounced on him and zipped his guts. The cellar smell was worse than never, ever today. Because of the flood, their house is high in Wickdom Street, near the crest of the hill, and escaped the worst, but it's still standing in order. Down there, they seek for the old rock foundations. The smell was low, unpleasant, making him want to take only a shadow's breath. Jules shifted through the jungle on shelf as fast as he could. Old cans of creamy, saw-punished rags, a broken kerosene lamp, two mostly empty bottles of weight, windex, an old flat can of total wax. For some reason, he's, he's, this can struck him. He spent nearly 30 seconds looking at total and lid. A kind of in there, but wonder. Then he tossed it back, and here it was, a square box of world golf on it. George snapped it and ran out the stairs as far as he could. Suddenly, where his shirt girl was out, and suddenly sure his shirt girl would be his undoing. The thing that in the cellar would allow him to get away, all the way out. And when he would grab the tail of his shirt and snatch him back, and... He reached the kitchen, swept the door shut behind him, and banged gustily. He leaned back against it with his eyes closed. Quick popped out his arms and forehead, and pelts of power of him, gripped tightly in one hand. The piano has come to a stop, and his bum voice floated to him. Georgie, can you can you slam the door a little harder next time? Maybe you could break some of the plates on the world's treasure, if you really tried. Sorry, ma'am, he called back. Georgie, you what you what you waste, Billy Bill said from his bedroom. He pitched his voice so that the mother could not hear. Georgie snickered a little. He fear was already gone. It had slipped away from him as easily as a nightmare slips away from a man awakes, cold skin and grasping, for a grip who fills his body and stares surrounded to make sure that none of what happened who begins at once to forget it. Arthur's by, gone by the time his feet fit the floor. Three quarters of it all the time he emerges from the shower begins to towel off. All by the time he finishes his breakfast, all gone, till the next time, when, in the grip of a nightmare, all the fears will be remembered. That turtle, George thought, going to count the drawer before the matches were kept. Where did I see a turtle like that before? 
No answer came, and he dismissed the question. He put a pack of matches from the drawer, knife in the rack, holding a sharp edge so seriously, waving his body as he tied to him, and a small bowl from the Welsh dresser in the dining room. Then he went back into Bill's room. Why how you are, to George, Bill said, Emily, enough, pushed back some of the sick stuff up his nose, night table. Empty glass of pitcher water, Kleenex, books at the bottom, a bottle of Vicks vapor rub, a smell which Bill would associate with his life was thick, plump, phlegm, che- phlegmy chest and snotty nose. The old Pillicose radio was there, too, playing, not shuffling or bark, but little Richard, too. Very slothly, however, so softly that Richard was robbed of all his raw elemental power. Their mother had studied classical piano at Gillard. Hating rock and roll, she not merely disliked it, she abominated it. I'm no a-hole, George said, sitting in the edge of Bill's bed and putting the things he had gathered gathered on the night table. Yes, you are, Bill said. Nothing but a great big brown a-hole, that's you. George tried to imagine a kid. Nothing but a great big a-hole on legs. Going to giggle. Your a-hole is bigger than Augusta, Bill said, beginning to giggle too. Your a-hole is bigger than the whole state. George replied, this, this boat broke both boys up with nearly two minutes. They had followed a whispered conversation of sort, which means very little to anyone save little small boys at Croatia's too. Who was the biggest a-hole? Who had the biggest a-hole? Which a-hole was the baroness? And so on. Funny Bill said one of the forbidden words. He accused Jules of being a big brown shitty a-hole. They both got, uh, got laughing hard. Bill's offer turned into a coffee fit. And he finally ran the taper off. By then, Bill's face had gone a plumbing shade, which Bill George regarded with some alarm. Then the flat piano stopped again. They both looked in the direction of the parlour, listening to the piano bench to scrape back, listening for their mother's impatient footsteps. Bill buried his mouth in the crook of his elbow, stifling the last of the coughs, pointing at the picture at the same time. George piled up with him a glass of water and ran, which he drank off. The piano began once, began once more. Farewell, see again. Stuttering Bill never forgot that piece, and even though many years later he never failed to find a goose flesh in his mouth and back, his heart would drop when he would remember. My brother was playing that day. Georgie died. You're going to cough any more, Bill? No. Bill pulled a Kleenex from his box, made a scrumbling sound in his chest, spat plectrum, phlegm into the tissue, Picked it, screwed it up, and tossed it into the wastebasket by his bed, which was filled with similar twists of tissue. He opened it in a box of paraffin and dropped waxy cuba stuff in his palm. George watched him closely, without speaking or questioning. Bill didn't like George talking to him while he did stuff, but George had learned he kept his mouth shut. Bill was usually explaining what he was doing. Bill used his knife to cut off a small piece of paraffin cube. He put the piece in the bowl, then struck a match and put it on the top of the paraffin. Toy boys watched a small yellow frame as a dying wind drove rain against the window in the cage of spares. Got the two waterproof the boat, or it'll just wet, get wet and sink, Bill said. When he, he was with Bill George, he stuttered with light. Sometimes he didn't stutter at all. 
His score, however, it could be so bad that talking would become impossible for him. Communication would cease, and Bill's schoolmates would look somewhere else while Bill clutched his sides of his desk, his face glowing almost as red as air. His eyes squeezed in the slits as he tried to winch some word out of his stubborn throat. Sometimes, most times, a word would come. Other times it simply refused. He'd have to be hit by he had been a bit of a car when he was free and not the side of his building. He remained, he remained unconscious for seven hours. Mum said it was an accident which caused the stutter. Jules sometimes got the feeling that his dad, Bill himself, was not so sure. A piece of paraffin on the bell was almost entirely melted. The flame, match flame gutted lower, growling boo as it ugged the cardboard stick and went, then went out. Bill dipped his finger in the liquid, jerked it out with faint hiss. He smiled apologetically at George. Oh, he said. After a few seconds, he dipped his finger in again and began to smear the wax along the sides of the boat. Where is it quickly dried on milky haze? Can I do, do some? George asked. Okay. Just don't get any on the blankets or Mum will kill you. George dripped his finger in the paraffin, which is now very warm, but not low on the hot. Then spread it along the other side of the boat. Don't put it on so much, you a-hole, he said, Bill said. You want to sink it on his maiden, maiden cruise? Oh, sorry. That's all right. Just go, go easy. George finished the other side and felt his boat in his hands. He felt a little heavier, but not much. Too cool, he said. I want to go out and sell it. Yeah, you can do that, Bill said. So he looked tired and tired and still not very well I wish you could come George said he really did Bill sometimes got bossy after a while but he always had the coolest ideas and he hardly ever hit it's your boat really she Bill said you call boats she see them I wish I could come too Bill said grumbly well George shifted one foot to the other both his hands you put it on your rain stuff Bill said Oh, you wind up with a flu, like me. Probably catch it anyway, for my germs. Thanks, Bill. It's a neat boat, and we said something he didn't, hadn't done for a long time. Something Bill never forgot. He leaned over and kissed his brother's neck. You'll catch it from sure now, UAL, Bill said. He seemed cheered up all the time. He smiled at George. Put all that stuff back, too, or Mum will get a, have a b- b- bird. Sure, he gathered up the waterproofing equipment and chased across the room and perched precariously on top of the paraffin box, which is a skew and a little bowl. Georgie, Georgie turned back to look at his brother. Be, be careful. Sure, his brow well, ceased a little. There was something your mum, there was something your mum said, not your big brother. It was strange as it, him giving Bill a kiss. Sure, Bill. He went out. Bill never saw him again. From the here, now he was, he was chasing down the side of the witch street, running fast, but the water was running faster. His boat was filled on his head. He heard a deepening roar and saw the fifty yards further down the hill water in the gutter was Castilian a strained arm. It was still open. It was a long, dark semicircle into the curbing. As, as George watched the strip march, it barked as dark as glistening as seal skin shot in the snow, snow, 
storm drains maul. It hung up there by a moment, and then looked down down inside. There was his boat, and was headed. Oh, shit, and sure enough, he yelled his maid. He put on the speed, and for a moment, he thought he would patch the boat. Then one of his feet slipped. He went spilling, skinning one knee and crying in pain. From his new pavement level perspective, he watched his boat swing down around twice, momently caught in another whirlpool, then disappear. Shit! And Shilona, he yelled, yelled again, and slammed his feet down on the pavement. That hurt too. He began to cry a little. What a stupid way to lose the boat. He got out and walked over to the storm drain. He dropped to his knees and peered in. The water made a dank, hollow sound as he fell to the ground in darkness. It was a spooky sound. It reminded him of... Huh! The sound was jerked out of him. And if a string and he recalled, there was a yellow eyes in there. The sore eyes he'd always imagined, but never really seen in the basement. It was an animal, he thought, incurrently. That's all it was. It is some animal, maybe a house cat. I got stuck at that in there. Still, he's ready to run, would run, a second or two, when his mental switch were dealt with a shock those two shiny yellow eyes had given him. He felt the rough surface of the vendor dam under his fingers and the sheen finishy of cold water flowing around them. He saw himself getting up and backing away, and then there, that was that when a voice, a perfectly reasonable and rather pleasant voice, no. spoke to him from inside a stone drain. No. Hi, Georgie. It said. No. Georgie blinked and looked again. He could barely no. credit what he saw. No. It was something like he made up a story no. or a movie where you know the animals no. will talk and dance. No. If he had been ten years older, he would not have believed what he was seeing. He was not sixty, he was six. There was a clown in Storm Drain. No. The night in there was a fur from good, but it was good enough so that George Denbury no. was sure he was seeing he was a clown. Like in a circus on TV. In fact, he looked like a cross between Bonzo, Clarewell, Bell, and a talk by honking. He saw her. George was never really sure of the gender. On the honky doodly Saturday mornings. Buffalo Bill about, was just about the only one who called, understand Colby, and always cracked George up. The face of the clown in Storm Train was white. There were funny twists of red hair on either side of his bald head. There was a big clown smile painted over his mouth. If George had been inhabiting a, a, a year later, he would surely for Ronald McDonald, for Bonzo or Clarodale Bell. A clown held a bunch of blues, all colours like gorgeous white fruit in one hand. And the other, he hailed George's of a newspaper boat. What's your boat? What? You, your boat, Georgie? The clown smiled. George smiled back. He couldn't help it. It was a kind of smile you had to answer. I sure do, he said. Georgie, the clown laughed. I sure do. That's good. That's very good. And now, how about a balloon? Well, sure, he reached forward. Then drew his hand reluctantly back. I'm not supposed to talk to st- Take stuff for strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, the clown said. His stained troll said. Smiled at Ow. Georgie wondered. Could I have thought, thought his eyes were yellow? A bright, dancing blue, the colour of his son's <coughs> eyes and bills. Very wise indeed. Therefore, I reduce myself, Georgie. I am Mr. Bob Gray, also <coughs> known as Pennywise, the dancing clown. Pennywise, meet George Denbury. George, meet Pennywise. Now we know each other. I'm not a stranger to you, and you're not a stranger to me. Can it? Can it? 
George giggled. I guess so. He reached forward and drew his hand back again. How did you get down there? Storm just blew me away, Pennywise, the dancing clown said. It blew the whole circus away. Can you smell the circus, Georgie? Georgie leaped forward. Suddenly you could smell peanuts. Hot roasted peanuts and vinegar. A white kind you put on your french fries for a hole in the cap. You can smell cotton candy and frying donut boys and the faint but thunderous odour of wild animal shit. You can smell the cheeky aroma midway for sounds sawdust and yet, and yet, all it was all the smell of flood and closing leaves and dark storm drained shadows. It smells wet and rotten, a cellar smell. But the other smells are stronger. You bet I can smell it, he said. Want your boat, Georgie? Pennywise asked. I can only repeat myself because you really do not see that either. He held up a smiling. He's wearing a saggy belt, saggy silk shirt. Suit with bright, giant, big orange buttons. A bow tie, electric blue, flopped down his front. His hands were big white gloves, like the kind Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck always wore. Yes, yeah, sure, Georgie said, looking in the strange room. And a balloon? I've got red and green, yellow and blue. Do they float? Float, the clown? Grin widened. Oh, yes, indeed they do. They float. And it's cotton candy. Georgie reached. The clown seized his arm. And George saw the clown's face change. What he saw was terrifying enough to make his first imagine the thing in the cellar. Looked like sweet dreams. What he saw destroyed his sanity in one clawing stroke. They float, the thing in his drain cooned, a clotted, chucking voice. He held George's arm in a thick and wormy grip. He pulled Georgie towards the terrible darkness, with a water rush and a roar and bellowed. It bore its cargo storm debris towards the sea. George craned his neck away from the final blackness and began to scream. To rain, to scream mildly, the water will to white autumn sky, which curled away above Derry on that day in the fall of 1957. His screams were shrill and piercing, and then all stood up down a week on the street. People came to their windows and all bought out, out into the porches. They float, he growled. They float. Georgie, they all, they all down here with me. You'll float too. Georgie showed a sot between the cement of the curb and David Gardner, who had stayed home for his job at the Stubot that day because of the water, saw only a small boy, a yellow rain sticker. A small boy was screaming and rivering in the gutter, with muddy, muddy water surfing under his face, making his screams sound bubbly. Everything down here floats, so that chuckling rotten voice whispered, and suddenly there was a rippling noise of flowing street of agony. She and George Denbury knew no more. David Gardner was the first to get there. Although he arrived only 50, 45 seconds before the first scream, George Denbury was already dead. George Gardner grabbed him by the back of his sticker, pulled him out in the street and began to scream. Himself as George's body turned over in his hands. The other side of George's sticker was bright red. Blood flowed from the slave drum, but a tattered hole from the left arm had been left. A knob of bone, horribly bright, pecked from the torn cloth. A bird on his eyes stared up the white sky as David, as Dave, staggered away towards the others, already raining pelt mill down the street. They began to fill up with rain. Somewhere below in the cellar drum, 
Who is already filled? No buying capacity. Runoff. There had been no one down there. The country sheriff would later claim the dairy newspaper. The frustrated ferry, so great, humorous agony. Hercules himself would have been swept away in a drain, driving current. George newspaper boat shot onward through night chambers, long concrete hallways, and roared and chimed through the water. For a while it ran neck and neck with a dead chicken, where it floated its yellowy reptilian toes, pointed at the dripping ceiling. Then, some junction east of the town, the chicken was swept off to the left, or George went straight. An hour later, our George's mother was already sedated in the emergency room, Derry Home Hotel Hospital, while stopping Bill sat stunned, awake and silent in bed. Listening to his father, stop hoarsely in the parlour where his mother had been playing for Elsie. When George went out, the, shot, the boat shot out through a concrete loophole like a bullet. It says in the muzzle of a gun and ran at speed down the stairway into an unnamed stream where it joined the boiling, swollen Pendlescott River. Twenty minutes later, the first rift of blue began to show the sky overhead. The storm was over. A boat dripped and a swayed, and something took on, sometimes took on water. We did not sink. The two brothers had walked it very well. I don't know where it finally fetched up, it, if it ever did. Perhaps it's reached the sea, and sails lie there forever, like a magic boat in a fairy tale. All I know is that it's still afloat, and still running on the breast of the flood, as it passed in the corporate town, limits of dairy, Maine, and then it passes out to its of his tail forever.